I invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Psalm chapter 27. Psalm 27. Before giving our attention to this passage from God's Word, let's pray and ask His blessing on our time together. Father, what great privilege and delight and certainly high calling it is to gather as your people uh, to worship and adore your name in song, in prayer, in hearing now from your eternal word of truth. We pray, O Lord, that such truth would be written, would be inscribed deep upon the hearts of your people, bringing appropriate conviction, bringing comfort, Uh, bringing uh, illumination of sin that we might again see the need for our great Redeemer and Savior, the Lord Jesus, uh, in whose name we pray. Amen. In many ways, we could say that the message of the Old Testament is a message of hope-filled theology. We have a God so powerful to save, so loving to redeem, so tender to care for his people that as soon as man rebels against him, his plan to redeem begins to be revealed. Every page of Old Testament scripture creates a longing for something more. And that longing is, I think, most evident, of course, in the books of prophecy in which the prophets of old look ahead, longing for a time of restoration, hope, peace, in which the nations of the world gather together to worship the living and true God. But this is not something we find in the prophetical books alone. Even in Old Testament narratives, there is hope-filled theology. Throughout the Psalms, there is a great forward-looking anticipation, an eschatological hope of something greater to come, restoration with the covenant Lord. A world filled with peace in which God's people long and delight to live under His sovereign rule. Rebellion of man removed definitively. Intimacy with God established forever. These are the things we find throughout the Old Testament. And so as God's people, as we develop a grid through which we view and study the Bible, part of the grid through which we look at the Old Testament is to be just this a grid of hope-filled theology. And we see a part of that eschatological hope here in Psalm 27, which we'll be considering together tonight. Of course, the Psalms are predominantly prayers, prayers used as God's people in worship, or prayers that would also be used individually as God's people would memorize them, put them to song, use them as meditation in their time with the Lord. As much as this time of the year is joyful, it can also be a time of great stress, anxiety, worry, and even discouragement. So I think it's good for us to step back from the busyness of the season and to give careful, contemplative thought to this psalm so that we might be reoriented back to where our hope really needs to focus. In many ways, isn't this what the regular pattern of worship is all about in the Christian life? Gathering each week, Sunday after Sunday, to be reoriented back to where we need to be. Gathering as his people, trusting in him, being challenged, being exhorted from his word of truth. So that we would in turn hope in him more. 
And in this, the Psalms act as disciplines of grace, reigning in our wayward hearts and minds where we need the discipline of God's word to come back to again and again. So let's read together this Psalm and consider how it helps us, how it guides us to both look back to the work of our Savior and look ahead to the return of our Savior at the end of the age. Psalm of David, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. For He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in His tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Now this psalm can be broken up really into three main sections. Verses 1 through 6, in which we'll spend the bulk of our time together tonight, we could call a foundation of theology. In verses 7 through 12, we find a prayer of David, the prayer of confident hope and trust. And then finally in verses 13 and 14, an expectant certainty in the work of Messiah. So let's take each one of these this evening, but again, giving our attention primarily to the first six verses. We find there again a foundation of theology. Now notice in the psalm that David's prayer does not begin until we get to verse 7. And so the first six verses of this psalm are instructive in nature. Theological groundwork in order to prepare for prayer. These six verses help the covenant community. They help us understand how to prepare our hearts and minds as we approach the Lord. Help us understand what to fill the mind and heart with as we come to Him in prayer. And so David reminds himself of eternal truths Truths surrounding the very nature of God, so that when he prays to the Lord, those truths surrounding the nature of the Lord become the foundation from which he then goes to the Lord in prayer. That's his starting point. So we could think of these first six verses as solid bricks that are laid down one next to another. 
solid foundation stones of theology, if you will, from which the edifice of prayer is then constructed. We'll look at some of the stones of theology that are laid here in these first few verses. Again, verse 1, the Lord is my light. The first image that we find is the Lord as light. And this image of light reminds us of the very beginning of creation in which God brought order into the formless creation, into the void, at the very beginning of, of, uh, of history. He speaks into the darkness, into the void. The very first words of Revelation that we read of Scripture that come from our Lord is, Let there be light. So by bringing light, He establishes purpose. He creates order, intent, and design. And the Lord is not just the Lord of light, but notice, He is my light. There is this personal, intimate language of ownership that He is mine and I am His. This same God who created, bringing light in the very beginning, light into darkness, the one who spoke and it came to be, the one who is infinite in power and wisdom, the one whose attributes of power and wisdom are put on display there at the very beginning of creation. It is this same unchanging God who gives me comfort and whose presence as light is with me always. Comfort in sorrow, peace in times of darkness, illumination to my path, guiding me in the way of truth. And so though we may face situations in life in which the future is uncertain, the comfort that we derive here is that we do not go there alone. We are accompanied by the one who is light, bringing purpose to all things. Bringing His light, His presence, His word of truth to bear in every event in life. It's a presence, again, that is intimate and comforting in a world that is filled with so much darkness. I once read about a pastor who was vacationing with his family at a cabin. They were staying in a very wooded area, a very wooded part of the country, One afternoon, he decided to take his older children uh, on a hike out in the woods while his wife and and smaller child stayed behind. And on his way back to the cabin, he realized that he was completely disoriented. But not wanting to frighten his children who were with him, he simply continued to walk in the direction of where he thought the cabin was supposed to be. We all know that's what we're not supposed to do, but that's what he did. The sun was setting, the night was quickly coming upon him, and as he was just about to give up in despair, for the cabin was nowhere in sight, he saw there in the coming darkness the light of the cabin off into the distance. And his heart was immediately put at ease. In many many ways, the situation was the same. He was still in the woods, he was still walking, he still had... A ways in order to get home, but the presence of light changes everything. A gaze that is fixed ahead with hope in the midst of darkness, looking ahead to the light of the world, peace in the midst of turmoil, certainty in times of uncertainty. 
David is saying that it is the reality that God is always with us as light that should bring us great comfort. The knowledge of his intimate, ever-pervasive presence gives us the proper perspective that we need in all of circumstances that come in life. But not only is he light, but he is also, as you read in verse 1, salvation. As salvation, he is the one who delivers. He is the one who redeems. Now, if you were a good little Israelite child, if you heard of salvation, you would immediately think of the great Exodus event in which the Lord your God brought your forefathers out of slavery and ushered them into the land of promise. It's that great redemptive event in which God brings victory over the most powerful nation in the world, while the people simply respond in trust. They do nothing to bring about their own salvation. They don't pick up swords to fight against the hostile enemies of the land, but they simply trust in the Lord who works deliverance for them. He is the mighty warrior who fights on their behalf, bringing salvation. And again, he is not merely salvation generally, but he is my salvation. He is the one who has worked his effectual calling in my life. He knows me intimately. He cares for me lovingly. He is the author and finisher of my faith. And just as he delivered that mighty death blow to the enemies of his people, while simultaneously bringing salvation to his own, so he will surely bring deliverance in my circumstances. For his character does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so it's good for us to reflect upon those mighty acts of God's deliverance for his people as we read about them in redemptive history, as we think about the way in which he faithfully works in our own lives. We are reminded that he is still the purposeful God, still the one who delivers in the midst of difficulties. Well, there's yet another image from verse 1 that David dwells upon as he is laying down these solid stones of theological foundation. He is the stronghold of my life. Here's a place of safety and security. The type of fortification that David would have in mind would be absolutely critical in the time in which he lived. A time of instability in which an army might attack at any moment. And yet I don't trust in man-made structures I don't trust in any man-made resources, but rather it is the Lord who is the one I run to in times of difficulty. He is the one to whom I flee as a stronghold for protection and comfort, the one who is the defense over my entire life. When the world seems unpredictable, when there seems to be no end to the onslaught of troubles in life, He offers a place of safety and security that drives out all fears. And that leads us on to see how David takes these truths now. Look how he takes the truths of God's unchanging nature and then works them out in his life. We see it in verse 1. A meditation upon the unchanging nature of the Lord drives out fear. Because he is my light and because he is my salvation... I have nothing to fear. Because he is my stronghold, there is no one who can rise up against me. There is no one who can take me from the hand of my precious heavenly Father. And we find the same line of reasoning in Romans 8, chapter 37. 
I think the next text in line for our uh, sermon series in Romans, when we come back in the new year, Romans 8, 37 and following, says, We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so if these things are true about my unchanging Lord, you see, I have nothing to fear. He is light, the creator of all. The one who illuminates my path throughout this life. The one whose truth intrudes into the darkness of this world. The one whose word of truth intrudes into the darkness of my own heart. Exposing my sin and my distrust and driving me again and again to the sufficiency of the work of my Savior. He is my salvation. The one who has secured my redemption ultimately in the ascending of the eternal Son to die for my sins. He is my stronghold. Is a place of refuge in times of trouble. He is an impenetrable force that nothing can break through. And I am his dear child, protected within that stronghold. Nothing can happen to me outside of his will and purpose for my life. You see, it's these truths that drive out fear, isn't it? Knowing that he is the great God. Knowing that he is our God outweighs any trouble that might come in this life. John Calvin says that our fears in life arise from this source of anxiety, from a failure to acknowledge that God is the preserver. So you see, very simply, when you find yourself being anxious, it's because you fail to acknowledge that God is your God and that He is lovingly preserving you. Now, this is just one verse from one psalm. And you can see how much mileage we can really get as we contemplatively meditate upon the Word of God, slowly dwelling upon such rich truths. Light, salvation, stronghold, what great images to fill our hearts and minds with as we go throughout this Christmas week so that we can't help but radiate joy. Moving on to verses 2 and 3, we see how David further applies these great truths to his life. Not only do these truths drive out fear, as he says in verse 1, but they bring comfort in the midst of hardship. Verse 2, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Now there's no indication from the historical setting of this particular psalm that David writes the psalm while he's in the process of fleeing from an enemy. But we do know from the life of David that he had plenty of experience being pursued by different armies. Whether it was the army under Saul's leadership who sought to destroy him when Saul was filled with rage and jealousy that David was the newly anointed king to come in his place. Whether it was the various nations of the world that David fought against under his own monarchy, pursuing his life and seeking to kill him. Whether it was later in his reign when Absalom took those betrayers from David's own army and chased him down, seeking his life. Even if such a horrible scenario like that came up in his life, he will not fear. He will be confident. 
You see, it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God can be trusted with life-threatening enemies, if he can be trusted in the face of absolute abandonment, look at verse 10, how he alludes to absolute abandonment from those who are closest to him. Even if my father and mother have forsaken me, the Lord will take me in. Then surely God can be trusted with everything else in life. Again, back to Romans 8, verse 32. We read there the argument from the greater to the lesser. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? In the end, the Lord will preserve his chosen people and bring judgment against those who stand against them and against the Lord. There is truly nothing that can happen to us that is outside of his absolute sovereign plan. And then we come to this remarkable verse, verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. It's here in the midst of the turmoil and noise of the world, whether pursued by enemies or forsaken by others, in the midst of all the instability of the world around, here is this one thing that preoccupies his thinking. When he might be tempted to fear, when he might be tempted to despair or be filled with sorrow, it is this one thing This one thing that so dominates the landscape of his mind that fears and worries pale in this life, fade into nothingness. A remarkable and comforting thing indeed. Notice that David's focus is not going to the Lord and asking the Lord to change his circumstances. But rather it is a pursuit of the Lord himself for the sake of the Lord himself. The end goal that David is focusing upon is a sustained gaze upon the face of the Lord. It is this one thing you see as a sustained reality that he longs for. What is this one all-consuming thing for David all about? Well, it's a longing for intimate fellowship with the Lord God. And we we need to understand that Mankind was created to dwell in the presence of God, our Creator. And the question ever since the fall is, how can anyone enter into the presence of God and have that intimate face-to-face fellowship and relationship with Him that our souls long for? That fellowship that we were designed for. How can we stand before the face of God when we have offended Him and when we have become so offensive to Him? And so here's the paradox. Here's the tension. We long for the presence of the Lord God, and yet our sin and our defilement keeps us from Him. You might recall Exodus chapter 33, where Moses longingly asks to see the face of the Lord his God. And God replies, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Or Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah is caught into the throne room of the Lord. And as he beholds the glory of God and His holiness, he is struck with a sense of his own unworthiness and his own defilement. So the face of the Lord is something desirable, something that we seek after, and yet a terrifying thing because of our rebellion against Him. 
And so the one thing that David seeks is a life of sustained fellowship with God. But as he longs for the presence of the Lord, he recognizes here that it is the same Lord who makes provision for this intimate fellowship. Look down, if you will, to verses 8 and 9. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. Notice again, it is the Lord who initiates. It is the Lord who calls his people to this intimate face-to-face fellowship. David recognizes that he deserves to be cast off. He sees his sin. And yet he is reminded that it is the Lord who remedies this dilemma by providing salvation. It is the Lord who calls us to seek his face. And then it is the Lord who provides the means to do so. In Genesis 1 and 2, we start creation with the accessible God. And the Garden of Eden is the temple of the Lord. It's the location in which we find His intimate presence with His people. It's a place of blessing. It's a place that the Lord God makes hospitable to His creatures. But of course, that quickly changes upon our rebellion against Him. Of course, it's not the nature of the Lord that changes, but it's access to the temple of the Lord. The location of His presence is now forbidden. Because the holiness of the Lord and the defilement of mankind don't fit together. And now the heavenly throne room of God, the temple of His presence, is now inaccessible because of our rebellion. As time moves on through redemptive history, the Lord makes provision for His people to meet with Him. He establishes the priesthood. He gives very specific instructions on how the tabernacle is to be constructed. He gives instruction on how the sacrifices are to, be, uh, are to be made by that priesthood. Again, provision for the people in order to worship their covenant God. But in the temple or the tabernacle, both, there would be a number of things that would hinder your ability from entering into the presence of God. There would be the outer courtyard with a barrier around it. There would be only one place to enter. And as you came through that one place, you would need to come bring with you an animal as substitute to hand over to the priest for sacrifice. And the priest would prepare that substitute ministering on your behalf. The priest is God's appointed representative on earth to guard the holiness of God, to keep you from simply entering into the temple. The outer courtyard would be the farthest that anyone would be allowed to go. You couldn't go into the temple and you certainly could not go into the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of the Lord. It was only the high priest and only once a year was he allowed to enter that most holy place on behalf of the people. And even as the high priest went into the presence of the Lord, there was hope that one day that might change. That one day all of God's people would be enabled to go into his presence. So what David longs for here, you see in verse 4, when he longs to dwell in the house of the Lord, it's not just because he's tired of living in one place and wants to live somewhere else. It's not just a change in physical location. But it's continual access to the presence of God that he is longing for. 
a longing to be able to inquire of the Lord all the time, to speak to Him continually without that painstaking process of the sacrificial system. David understands the temporary and the provisional nature of the priesthood and the temple. He understands the loving, tender mercy of his God who calls his people into his presence. He understands that it is the Lord who beckons his people to come and to seek his face. And in seeking his face, finding favor with him. At the same time, David is fully aware of his unworthy nature and that he cannot come on his own. And what David longs for is possible because of what Jesus Christ accomplished. Our Savior became our high priest and went before the face of God making atonement with his own blood. But he was not clothed with the radiant garments that the high priest would wear on that day of atonement. Rather, he was stripped naked for us. And he did not take with him a basin filled with the blood of a substitute to sprinkle upon those elements, purifying them of their defilement and showing our need for shed blood. But he spilled his own blood. And the temple veil that kept everyone from entering into the presence of God was ripped from top to bottom, that we might now see him face to face in redemption, in restoration. All of this, you see, is what David longs for in shadow form. Now imagine on Christmas morning that you wake up early. Most likely your children wake up early. And they come out to the tree. And they separate everyone's packages into all their own little piles so that they can get to theirs faster that way. And as they're waiting for you to wake up, they're feeling each one of the packages, trying to shake them, but not too hard. Is it soft? Is it socks that goes to the back of the line? Is it something that's maybe more substance to it? Well, that comes to the front, doesn't it? Now, those packages are already yours, but not quite yet. That's what it was like for David and the other saints of old. They were given the gift of God's covenant promises, and there was hopeful anticipation that something great is coming, and yet it's not yet fully revealed to them. And then on Christmas morning, when the rest of your family members finally wake up, and it's your turn to open your packages, and you turn to that one huge box with the most gloriously wrapped paper, all symmetrically lined with the perfect bow upon it, and you tear into it, and there on the outside of the box is the picture of the most amazing thing you could have ever imagined. You never dreamed that this would be the gift that is yours. It's yours. It's been given to you. It's been purchased by another. And it's now your possession. That's what it's like, you see, now that Christ has come. David saw it in shadow form, but we now see more fully. But there's still more, isn't there? There's still more to be unwrapped as that box is discarded and you hold in your hands the reality of the thing itself. We have Christ already. He is ours and we are His. But we have yet to see Him in His radiant glory. We have yet to see Him face to face, to hold Him with our own hands. And when we see Him, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. See, here's a lesson for us as we read through the Psalms. 
If David is holding that wrapped package, not really knowing for certain how God is going to bring about his covenant promises, and yet he speaks with such confidence of entering into his presence, able to trust, hope, and delight in the Lord, well, how much more should we, who see Christ clearly, how much more should we be enabled to trust in him? These are just six short verses in one psalm of Scripture through which we see very practical, very life-changing things that we can draw upon the nature of the Lord. You see those solid stones of theology from which our prayers are built. Only then, after this foundation is put down, does David then turn to prayer in verse 7, a prayer of confident hope and trust. Now, one commentator, speaking of the psalms, He says that every petition leads to praise. So you see, the petitions that David brings before the Lord lead him to exalt the name of the Lord. And what a great way for us to think about the petitions and the requests that we make of God. When we ask Him for things, do we find that our prayers are ending with praising the Lord, exalting His name, adoring His very nature? In our requests, you see, we need to be shaped by this theology of who our Lord is, His unchanging nature. Ed Welch illustrates it like this. He says, when you're flying a plane in thick fog, you trust your instruments, not your vision over the horizon. When there's a contradiction between your senses and your instruments, you better believe the instruments. Although you may face situations, even in the coming week, in which your senses lead you to believe that God is absent, uncaring, not meeting the desires of your heart, it's the instruments of His very own word of promise that point you to the reality of His covenant faithfulness. The theological instruments of verses 1 through 6, you see, lay the groundwork for the content of our prayers and the disposition of our responses. Notice that the theological truths of God's nature move David to action. He's not passive in his growth growth in grace, but he actively seeks the Lord, meditating upon his word, seeking him in in prayer and in fellowship. Turning, in verse 6, turning in songs to the Lord, longing to sacrifice to him. Verse 7, confidently crying out to the Lord, knowing that he hears him. Let's move on to the final section here, verses 13 and 14, in which we see a future gaze in the work of Messiah. See, David starts this psalm with words of hope, and he ends the psalm with words of hope. As he finishes the psalm, he proclaims the goodness of God. He waits upon the Lord to bring about deliverance. He waits upon the Lord to provide the means and the timing of Messiah which is the Savior who has come in flesh to redeem His people from sin. Now Christmas, you see, is a time to set your gaze ahead. And certainly we look back to the incarnation of our Savior, to His life of perfect obedience, to His substitutionary death upon the cross, to His resurrection from the dead, victory over death, our greatest of enemies, to his ascension on high as our mediator, as he sits at the right hand of the Father. But we also look ahead to the day when he will return, 
A day more glorious than anything we could imagine. A day that will wipe away every tear from our eye and every hardship will be over. A day in which we will behold the glory of the eternal glorified risen Savior. A day in which He will say, Seek my face. Seek my face, beloved child of God. And we will behold His face for all of eternity. Turn with me, if you will, in closing to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, look at verse 4 there. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. When anxiety creeps into our life, as Paul says here, he exhorts us to do three things. Rejoice in the Lord. Seek Him in prayer. Fill your mind with praiseworthy truths. Let's pray together. Father, again, what delight it is to rejoice in you, our infinite Lord of glory, mercy, grace, and love, so tender to save, um, so tender to love your people the way in which you do, with an infinite, undying love, as we are reminded in these next few days of the great work of our Savior to come down in flesh, to come from on high in that work of infinite condescension. May we also look ahead to the return of our Savior at the end of the age, the great Lord of glory who will appear. Uh, may our hearts and minds be fixed upon that day. May we be people filled with hope and trust. Uh, be joy-filled people throughout uh, this week and all the, the days that you give us life upon this earth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.